Let's now open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, we are continuing on, nearing the end, nearing the conclusion of this glorious epistle. And we're going to be picking up where we left off last week. That has us in verse 20. So let's once more stand together in honor of the Word of God. As we hear now the Word of the Lord. We're actually going to back up, just get a running start at this. Start reading in verse 18. Hear the Word of the Lord now. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, we, we humble ourselves before you. We pray now by the same spirit who inspired this word that you would give us ears to hear. That you would give us receptive hearts to receive your word. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. O oh Lord, by your spirit, help us to behold wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. A young man you may have heard of before named Charles Spurgeon planned to attend... Stepney College, like his father wanted him to. It was a Baptist school, the top Baptist school in all of England. Spurgeon was exceptionally bright. And so going there was going to ensure him a great ministry opportunity down the line. And he went for his interview, for his admission interview, to meet with the principal. But when he arrived to meet with the principal for his admission interview, the servant girl showed Spurgeon to the wrong room. And so Spurgeon sat in the room waiting, and the principal sat in his room waiting, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and the principal finally left and went home. Eventually Spurgeon is informed, he's gone now, we're sorry, we made a mistake. Spurgeon leaves dejected, 
greatly disappointed. That afternoon he said, though, it was as if the voice of God himself had spoken to him from the words of Jeremiah, chapter 45. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Believing he'd heard from the Lord on the matter, young Spurgeon surrendered his great plans for a great ministry and returned to his little village, content to spend his life ministering in obscurity and preaching to the little handful of people in his village church. God's plans, as we know, for Spurgeon were much different than that, much different than Spurgeon's plans for himself were it. At the age of 19, he was called to pastor a prominent church, New Park Street. When he arrived, it had only 200 members. By the end of his pastorate, which was 38 years in that church, there were over 20,000 members in that church. By 1865, some 25,000 printed copies of his sermons were being sold each week, translated into 20 different languages. During his lifetime, he preached to an estimated 10 million people. Think of that. No microphones. 10 million people heard him in person. No podcasts. He's known today as the Prince of Preachers. He remains perhaps the most beloved preacher since the time of the New Testament. And the Lord continues to use his ministry to transform people's lives to this very day. Only God knew what he had in store for Spurgeon. Spurgeon's plans for himself did not go the way he intended them to. God knew. God had a plan. And there was much suffering along the way for him. His beloved wife, Susanna, became an invalid at the age of 33. For most of her life, she could never even hear him preach in person. Her, his body was racked with pain and illness. He suffered most of his life from a deep, dark depression. There was a, a horrible tragedy that occurred in his ministry in 1865. 22-year-old Spurgeon was preaching to a massive crowd at the music hall at the Royal Surrey Gardens, and someone up in the balcony started yelling, Fire! Fire! The crowd stampeded. 28 people were injured, and seven people died. To the, to the end of his life, Spurgeon had a panic attack when he heard the hymn that was being sung at the time that that was yelled out and that that stampede occurred. He suffered for the rest of his life from severe bouts of anxiety after that. In the joys and the triumphs and the sorrows, his life did not go the way he had planned, but God had a perfect plan for him. He used him mightily to accomplish his good purposes. And we're going to see that with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is setting forth for us in this passage a very clear plan. He knows what he wants to do. In Romans chapter 15, Paul's been sharing his heart. He's been sharing his calling. He has described his ministry of fulfilling the Great Commission by the power of the Spirit of God. And now he's going to share with the Romans his ambition, his plans. Look at verse 20. As I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. This word ambition, it's also translated as I aspire to, I strive to. Literally, it means to love or to, to seek after honor. This is Paul's obsession. This is Paul's passion, Paul's glorious ambition, his entire life's focus is to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is consumed with fulfilling the Great Commission. 
How do you know what somebody's actually passionate about? We can talk about the things we know what we're supposed to be passionate about, but how do you know what somebody's actually passionate about? It's not hard to tell because they talk about it all the time. Have you ever heard the expression, how do you know if somebody's a vegan or if they do CrossFit? Don't worry, they'll tell you. But what the things we're passionate about, we are evangelistic about. We talk about them all the time. Paul is all about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is consumed with zeal to preach the good news of Christ. And in particular, he says to preach it in verse 20, not where Christ has already been named. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. Last week we talked about Paul's apostolic calling. And Paul here applies the words of the prophet Isaiah to his own apostolic ministry. The gospel must be taken to the very ends of the earth. And Paul says, I want to be right in the thick of it. I don't want to build on someone else's foundation. I don't want to go to the places that have already heard of Christ. I want to go and, and take it to the frontiers. I want to proclaim Christ to the ends of the earth. These, these, this prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled in our day still to this day. We can hear echoes of the heart of Paul here in the words of the great missionary to Africa in the 19th century, David Livingston. He was once asked, Mr. Livingston, where do you want to go? And he said, anywhere, as long as it's forward. This is the heart of missions, to keep moving. He was passionate to reach Africa with the gospel. Paul was obsessed with reaching his world with Christ. This is the focus of the New Testament church. It is the, the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Tertullian, the, the second and third century church father, described the, this rapid expansion of the gospel in the early church. He said, we are but of yesterday. In other words, we're kind of new on the scene. We are but of yesterday, but we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, marketplaces, the very camps, tribes, companies, palaces, and your senate. We have left nothing alone except the temples of your gods. In other words, he's saying Christians are everywhere. Every sphere of life, Christians have, have infiltrated and taken the gospel with them. All of these Christians in every sphere of life that God has placed them are missionaries carrying the gospel with them. James Montgomery Boyce describes the great mission of Christianity, the fulfilling of the Great Commission is being accomplished by informal missionaries, by and large. It is people in their various spheres of life taking the gospel message with them. The work of Christ is accomplished by ordinary people. The apostles laid the foundation. Now we build upon it. And so Paul's obsession to, to spread the gospel of Christ must be our obsession. It must be that our ambition. It must be that which we are consumed with. Now, it's not going to look exactly like the Apostle Paul. We spoke of that last week. He, he had, and the other apostles, had a unique, special call and ministry from God. But God has called each one of us as ambassadors of his kingdom to make it our ambition to proclaim Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission. And so Paul, Paul tells them three places he hopes to travel soon. Verse 23 says, I'm longing to come to you. 
In other words, I'm, I want to come to Rome. Verse 25, he says, at present, I'm going to Jerusalem. Verses 24 and 28, he says, after I see you, I'm going to Spain. So here's Paul's three major ministry plans, the great apostle. His three major plans. Short term, I want to come see you guys in Rome. I've been, I've been longing to see you. In the immediate, his immediate goal is to go to Jerusalem. Then his long-term goal is to get to Spain. But none of these goals, none of these plans turned out the way the Apostle Paul thought they would turn out. Nothing went according to plan. Not Paul's plan anyway. Verse 22, he says, this is the reason I've so often been hindered from coming to you. In other words, I expected to be to you long before now. I expected to have met you a long time ago, but I have been hindered, Paul says. This word hindered literally means to cut in. It's, a, it's describing a military tactic of Paul's day. The army would cut deep ditches into the road so that the enemy army couldn't just pass through the road. They would have to stop their forward progress, and they would have to fill in ditches before they could get their wagons and their chariots and their equipment, whatever they had, before they could keep going forward. So Paul's picturing himself as, as in a chariot, wanting to rush to Rome, wanting to get there. And he says, I've had to stop time and time and time again. I've been hindered over and over from coming to you. The road has not been passable. Other things keep getting in the way. This has gone on for a long time. Look at verse 23. But now, since I no longer have any room to work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, for years. Years Paul has wanted to. He has planned to go to Rome. Something has always prevented him. And he didn't get to go. He longed for most of his Christian life to get to Rome. And when he finally got there, it was nothing like he had planned or imagined. It wasn't like he was thinking when he wrote these words. He went to Rome not as a pioneer, but as a prisoner. A very different thing. Now, despite the false teaching of the word of faith and prosperity gospel, which has been the wicked false teaching that we have imported now to the rest of the world from America as our gift to them, which infiltrates much of the teaching we see on our televisions from so-called ministers of the gospel and many of the books that we read, certainly the most popular music that Christians are listening to and singing in their churches, Despite what they tell us, Christians are not exempt from suffering. We are not exempt from misfortune. No matter how great your faith is, no matter how closely you walk with God, no matter how obedient or how faithful you are to Him, the sun shines and the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked alike. On all of mankind, sickness and trouble and hardships and difficulties and hindrances and obstacles, they come on all of us. Now, we, we may never face the kind of trouble that the Apostle Paul faced in his life, but Jesus says, in the world, Christian, you will have trouble. And if, like Paul, your central passion is to advance the name and the glory and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will also have all the trouble that comes along with the world that hates you because they hate him. 
Paul, though, tells the Romans, I have been longing to come to you for years. I've been longing to come to you. Why, why does Paul want to go to Rome? Well, for one thing, this is the capital city of the Roman Empire. Paul wants to be right in the thick of it. He wants to be right in the center of the world. He wants to go there in this most influential place and proclaim the lordship of Christ there. To preach the gospel there. More than that, he wants to help the Roman believers grow. He said that all the way back in chapter 1. I'm sure you remember chapter 1. It was only like three years ago when we were there. I'm sure none of you have forgotten. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have, been, that I have often intended to come to you. Thus far I have been prevented in order that I may, may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says, I want to be part of what the Lord is doing there. I, I want to be part of your spiritual growth. I want to share the joy of sharing in your faith. I will benefit if I come to you because of what the Lord is doing among you. And Paul wants to go to Rome so they can help him. He says in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. I want to be helped on my journey. Literally, he means physically helped, financially helped, helped in a way that gets him to his ultimate goal of Spain. He's going to need food. He's going to need money. He might need traveling companions. He might actually need a means of transportation. He wants to come to Rome, that they can help him, that they can partner in this ministry with him. This is, in a very real sense, a missionary support letter. As Paul now turns and addresses them and says what he's doing in his ministry, what he plans to do, and he's going to lay out for them when he sees them exactly what kind of help he needs. He's writing to the Romans and saying, I need your help if I'm going to do this thing that the Lord has called me to do. It's the same strategy that missionaries use today. We put the vision out there. Here's what I'm going to be doing. Here's what I believe the Lord has called me to do. Here's how I'm going to accomplish it. And we make it known to churches and other believers that they might help us in that ministry. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma in the mid-1800s, said, when it comes to the matter of raising funds for the work of ministry, number one, I ask God, and number two, I tell God's people. That that's his strategy. I ask God for it, and then I tell God's people. That's what Paul's doing. Paul depends on God for this, but he's telling God's people because God works through means. How is God going to make this happen? He's going to make it happen through his people. First, though, before he comes to them, he's got to go to Jerusalem. Verse 25, he says, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. Macedonia and Achaia have also been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing they ought also be of service to them in material blessing. The church of Jerusalem at this time was suffering. They were suffering not only persecution, which was beginning and ramping up, they were also suffering great poverty. There was a, a famine throughout Palestine. And on top of this famine, because of the persecution by unbelieving Jews, many Christians had lost their jobs. Christians were starting to be thrown in prison. 
which, which made a situation go from bad to worse for their families. In addition to that, there were many Jews that had, had come into Jerusalem, were converted to Christ, so many through the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. And what did they do? They just decided, we live here now. We're staying here. We're going to be right here where all of this is going on. And so they just never went home. They just stayed in Jerusalem, decided to become part of the church in Jerusalem. Many of them were, were living as house guests of the believers in Jerusalem. As John MacArthur points out, that's a beautiful thing. But it also added to the overall state of emergency in, in Jerusalem. We've got this influx of people on top of a famine, on top of persecution. There's nowhere for them to live. They're living with us. We've got to figure out how to put food in everybody's mouth. So Paul's taking up a collection for them, to provide for them, he says. And, and Paul's choice of words here in verse 26 is interesting. This word, contribution, the, the actual Greek word there is one you may have heard before. It's koinonia. The word is often translated as fellowship. And so this, this offering is about far more than just money. It's a relationship. It's a fellowship. It's a sharing of life. And we've talked quite a bit about the tensions that are going on in the early church. The prejudice that existed in both direction between Jew and Gentile at this time. There is a... a, a a racial division, an ethnic division within the church. Jews are suspicious of Gentiles. Gentiles are suspicious of Jews. And so this offering means far more than just money. Gentile Christians giving financial support to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Even, Paul says at one point, out of their poverty. They gave well beyond their means to support their Jewish brothers and sisters. What, what an expression of fellowship. What, what an expression of communion. It is a clear statement of unity. And that is a major reason Paul is so passionate about this. He says of the Gentile Christians, you owe a debt. You owe a debt to these brothers here in Jerusalem. Your faith is the result of God's work right there. It goes on, verse 28, When I therefore have completed this, have delivered them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So, so Paul has a plan for what he intends to accomplish. He's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to, to deliver for them what has been collected for them. And then he wants to go to Rome, and he wants to spend time with the saints there in Rome. He wants to teach them. He wants to be of benefit to them, and he wants to benefit from them, sharing in the Lord's blessing and his work among them, partnering with them in ministry as they partner with him. Third, though, his ultimate goal, his big goal, is to make it to Spain, to be a pioneer of the gospel there. To build, on a found, to build and lay a foundation in a place where no foundation has been laid. Well, why does Paul want to go to Spain? Probably a couple reasons that this is his big goal. One is Spain is producing some of the greatest minds of Paul's generation. Seneca, the prime minister of the empire of Rome, is from Spain. Quintilian, the master of Roman oratory, is a Spaniard. Lucian, the great poet. Perhaps... Paul's thinking, I want to go to where the most influential people in the whole world are, and I want to take the gospel to them. 
I'm going to proclaim the lordship of Christ to them. And who would we want but Paul to do that? To, to go to the most formidable people in the world. Who, who could compare with Paul's intellect? Who, who could, who could per, compare with his ability to persuade? More than likely, though, Paul wants to go to Spain because Spain is considered the very end of the civilized world. When we, when, when we reread the story of, of Jonah, and the Lord calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah decides to run to the opposite end of the world as best he can. It's this area he heads for. This is the end of the world here, Spain. Paul, consumed with the Great Commission, that's exactly where he wants to go. I want to take this gospel to the very ends of the earth, just as Jesus Christ commanded. So these are Paul's plans. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm coming to Rome, and I'm stopping at Rome on my way. The big plan is to get to Spain. And his plans will not go the way he expects. He'll make it to Jerusalem. He'll deliver the money to the needy saints. The book of Acts records that journey for us. Strangely, though, as he's traveling to Jerusalem, every time he stops somewhere, the people warn him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, this is the plan. I'm going to Jerusalem. They keep doing weird things like binding his hands with a belt, saying, don't go. Acts 21 records a shocking development. A week after arriving in Jerusalem, Jews from Asia stir up the crowds in Jerusalem. They start a riot after Paul, attempting to kill him. The Roman soldiers have to intervene to prevent him from being murdered, and they intervene by placing him under arrest. In Acts 22, the next day Paul stands in trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, and they condemn him to death. Again, the Roman soldiers have to intervene and rescue Paul or they're going to kill him. They keep him in custody. Acts 23 through 26 say Paul was transferred to Caesarea. He remains there in prison for two years. He appeals as a Roman citizen to give his testimony to Nero, and he's granted that appeal to go to Rome and to appear to Nero. So he goes to Jerusalem like he plans. He gets arrested there. And it's two years time now. He's just incarcerated. He finally has to appeal as a Roman citizen. I, I have the right to appeal my case before Nero in Rome. So they say, fine, we'll send you to Rome. So Paul's getting to Rome, not the way he thought he was going to get to Rome. Acts 27, Paul as a prisoner under guard set sail for Rome, finally. And on top of all that's happened to him already, a fierce storm arises on the sea. The ship is torn apart, shipwrecked on the island of Malta. At least they're safe on dry ground in Malta, but it's raining and it's cold, so they build a fire. And as Paul puts wood on the fire, like we would all expect to happen, a viper jumps out at him and bites him and latches onto his head. This poisonous snake. Paul shakes it off. They're convinced he must be a, some horrible criminal. This person who's under, under guard and under arrest, he must be a murderer. God is going to kill him with this snake, but nothing happens to Paul. The Lord protects him. He ends up spending the whole winter, three months on the island of Malta. Acts 28, then they finally make it to Rome. Paul's placed under house arrest in Rome. And he actually gets to meet with the Christians in Rome now. 
He only gets to meet with them if they come to his house because he's under house arrest. But he at least gets to, to interact with them. And after two years of that, it seems that Paul was released for a period of time. And then here's what we know. We know he was arrested again and ultimately martyred by Roman Emperor Nero. There's no visit, no, no, no visit to Spain in the New Testament. We, we don't know for sure if Paul made it there or not. There is some historical evidence that he may have made it there briefly. We do know from his epistles that Paul made another missionary journey after this time of house arrest was over in Rome. But whatever that was, it was not what Paul was planning for. It was not what he had been hoping for. Paul may or may not have ever made it to Spain, but we do know this. He was arrested again, and this time it was not house arrest. This time he was sent essentially to a prison that was a dungeon, a hole in the ground. It was much, much worse than his former imprisonment. If you were in this prison, it meant you were condemned. You were going to die. And so as Paul writes his later letters from this prison, Paul knows the end is near. Paul knows I'm, I'm going to die. They're going to execute me here. His time in Rome wasn't what he envisioned that it was going to be. This joyous, glorious time of serving the Christians in Rome enjoying the benefits of, of the Lord's work among them, being sent on his way with provisions to Spain to fulfill what he believes is, is the, the culmination of his ministry. No, his great ambitions were not fulfilled. His prayers in this regard were not answered the way he hoped they would be. His longings were not fulfilled the way he expected And I know that for many of you, your longings haven't been fulfilled the way you expected either. But that's the nature of what it looks like to live in this world. You, you, you may even have, as Paul did, godly ambitions that just don't seem to be coming together in the way you had prayed for. Perhaps for some of you, that has led to discontent. Discontent with the life that you've lived up to this point. Discontent with the life you are living at this very moment. Let me just make three simple observations about life in general. One is your, your life may seem held up. Your life may be slowed. Your my, life may seem delayed when you feel like you should have arrived a long time ago. Paul says, I fully expected to have seen you years ago. But I've been hindered from coming. Your life may feel stalled when you feel like it should be on a full-on sprint by this point. There are moments in my life where I, where I sit and I think, I'm 46 years old. I really haven't done anything. I really haven't accomplished anything. I'm not sure there's anything worth writing on my tombstone. In those moments, that, that's self-indulgent, uh, morose, you know, prideful thinking where our lives are supposed to be, like we're, we all think we're supposed to be famous or so. I don't know what that is, but perhaps you feel that way. I think we all feel that way at times as we look at our lives and we go, man, 
There's a, it just doesn't seem like what I thought it was going to be. God does not always choose to explain the reason for this, by the way. Sometimes we see his hand of providence when it's over. We look back and we go, oh man, that time where I was, I just had this longing to do this thing and I was never able to do it. And we look back and we go, and praise God for that. He knew better. Sometimes we never do. We never know why. We never know why. It just didn't happen. Why, why are there delays? Why has the road been dug up so that I'm hindered? When it feels like I should be on a full, full steam ahead sprint. Why, why is that? Why can't you make the progress you know you should? Well, God never explained it to Paul. Not that we see. Not that we see in the pages of Scripture. Paul's plans were good plans. Paul's plans honored the Lord. Paul's plans were selfless plans. Paul's plans were to, in obedience to Christ, to fulfill the Great Commission, to play his part, which was a major part. Paul's plans were good and honored the Lord, but God's plans were perfect. We have to remind ourselves of that. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that we believe God does what is best every single time and that he does not owe us an explanation for anything. He is good and does good. We believe that. Second, your life may involve, in fact, it will involve experiences and challenges that you never expected you were going to face. Paul did not plan for a riot. That wasn't part of his plans as he lays it out. I'll go to Jerusalem. The people will freak out, try to murder me. I'll spend some time arrested. No, none of that. He didn't plan for a riot, a trial, a shipwreck, a snake bite, imprisonment. Just as with Paul, God does not clarify exactly why it is we're enduring the things that we're enduring. We most often do not get the answers to those questions and will not, will not get the answers to those questions in this life. But friends, sustaining grace is never measured out to us ahead of time. It's given to us day by day. His mercies are new every morning. We see that from Paul in the midst of his trials. We can read that from Paul. In the, throughout, throughout all of these trials, we have the written word of Paul in his epistles telling us exactly what's going on in his mind. And we see God's sustaining grace such that Paul's ministry was perfect in the plan of God. Perhaps we wouldn't have some of the letters we have if Paul's plans had, had gone the way he thought they would. No, in, 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 the, in the perfect will of God, God's plans were perfect. Paul, near the end of his life, writes in 2 Tim, Timothy chapter 1, says this in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but sharing, uh, but, but share in suffering for the gospel 
by the power of God. Verse 12, he says, But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Right up until the end. God's sustaining grace. As Paul writes these words in Romans chapter 15, he does not know that any of this is going to happen to him. He's writing these plans and he fully expects this is exactly what I'm going to do. But we see him right up until the end, trusting in God's providence, trusting that God's plans were better than his. That is the sustaining grace that God gives to his people and he gives it to us in the moment. He gives it to us when we need it. How can I wake up one more day? Maybe you've been through such suffering in your life. How do I wake up? How do I wake up one more day? How do I keep going? I can tell you in my life, in my darkest times, I've woke up in the morning sorry that I woke up. Wishing that my life had ended in my sleep. How how do we keep going? It's God's sustaining grace. When when we're in that place, when when we're in that place of suffering, when we're in that place of of tragedy and trial that I know many of you have walked through, it is God who has sustained you and, and, and enabled you to come as we stand and we sing and we we praise this God who is worthy of worship, and we see that in Paul's life. In the midst of such trials, in the midst of such a disappointment, his longings, his ambitions not fulfilled. Your, your life may turn in the direction you never expected to journey. But Christian, God is accomplishing his good purposes through you. You can know that. You can know that. My plans were good. God's plan is perfect. It's your job then simply to be faithful. To trust. That's your job. You can control these things. Paul Paul made his plans, but he knew the Old Testament better than we do. He made his plans, but the Lord directed his steps. We make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. We, we can't force these things to happen. But we can trust God. Ours is to stay faithful. Christian, faithfulness is enough. That's what's in our hands. There was one thing, though, that Paul thought would happen to him that actually did happen. Look at verse 29. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. He did not come to them the way he thought he would come to them, but he came to them in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. That's what it means for God to be sovereign over our lives and for God to be good. Is that when our plans fall apart, when our longings are not met, when our even godly ambitions don't work out the way we want them to, That does not mean that the fullness of God's blessing is not in full operation on those who are hidden in Christ and belong to Him. This is not a punishment from God. Paul was not being punished. So is God's perfect plan because His ways are higher than our ways. The fullness of the blessing of Christ in Paul's life meant much difficulty and hardship But he knew that Christ was with him. He knew that Christ was for him. 
And he knew that his labor for the Lord was not in vain. It was not wasted. And friends, if we know that, God is with me. God is for me. My labor for the Lord is not in vain. His plans for me are perfect. If we knew that, then we can walk through anything. We can be faithful through anything. Paul knew that God's plans for him were perfect. Paul's life was a life of gospel ministry. Paul made the central passion of his life, what he says in Philippians 3, the surpassing work of knowing Christ Jesus. Oh, Paul had these godly ambitions, these, these drives, these obsessions, these longings. I want to get to Spain. I want to be a pioneer for the gospel there. Oh, but the central passion of Paul's life, the central obsession, the central, central thing was this. To know Christ. Compared to which Paul says he counts everything else as rubbish. All my plans. All my ideas. To know Christ. And to make him known. This is the all-consuming passion of Paul's life. Whatever that looks like. Consumed with Christ. Consumed with love for Christ's church. He would spend himself and be expended for God's glory and for the expansion of the gospel. Friends, may this be our heart as well. May this be our consuming passion. May his ambition to see Christ glorified be our ambition. Even as his message is our message. The same Holy Spirit that gave us this message, the same Holy Spirit that empowered the Apostle Paul, now lives in us, empowering us, causing us to work to bear much fruit for the kingdom. May we be a people consumed with the glory of Christ and our call to make this Take this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for our brother Paul. Lord, who has modeled for us such faithfulness, such courage, who has by your spirit given to us such wisdom and such truth. Pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful. I pray, Lord, that, that in all the ways that we have, have Lord, been, been lazy, been fearful, where we have, have treasured other things, and it has caused our love for you to grow dull and lukewarm, pray, Lord, in your mercy to us, in your kindness to us, that you, by your Spirit, would bring conviction of sin upon us, even now that you would bring repentance to us, that you would even bring into mind, Lord, those, those idols, those other things that we have chased after, that we have made our ambition and our goal, Lord, that you would reveal them to us and by your Spirit enable us to renounce them and put them to death, that we would be a pure people for you, that we would be a passionate people for you, and yes, Lord, that we would have a holy ambition 
to know you and to make you known. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. We rejoice in you. In Jesus' name, amen.